0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 59 of Inside COVID 19. In this episode, highlights with relevance to South Africa from a fascinating interview with the U.S.'s coronavirus doctor, Anthony Fauci. Two takes on last night's controversial new regulations imposed by President Cyril Ramaphosa. Researchers Ask Africa and the man representing 35,000 licensed taverners. And we'll take a look at the excruciating choice for parents on whether to send their children back to school. Inside COVID-19, News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's mortalities passed the 4,000 mark on Sunday. It's the eighth successive day of more than 100 deaths. Although daily infections have been rising by among the highest in the world, total mortalities are relatively modest by comparison, ranking the country 23rd overall and a fraction of the 138,000 American and 72,000 Brazilian mortalities. South Africa's confirmed infections, however, are now above 275,000. That's the 10th highest of any country. Differences of opinion rage around the likely final mortality count. President Soro Ramaphosa told the nation Sunday night that the government's model is anticipate between 40,000 and 50,000 South African deaths by the end of the year. Nick Hudson, coordinator of PANDA, an independent group of actuaries, said today there's nothing in the data to suggest that they should change their long-term projection of 10,000 mortalities. President Ramaphosa's new regulations announced on Sunday included the immediate banning of alcohol sales and the imposition of a national curfew from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. On the other hand, taxis are allowed to increase their loads to 100%, and while citizens are prevented from visiting family, they are allowed to attend church and funeral gatherings of up to 50 people. The regulations have received widespread criticism, especially from the liquor trade. An interview coming up with Lucky Ntimani, who represents 35,000 licensed taverners. While South Africa is in the middle of its own pandemic storm, new coronavirus cases in the U.S. state of Florida topped 15,000 yesterday, the largest one-day increase for any of America's 50 states. More than half of the states are now reporting steady increases in daily cases, with near records in highly populated California and Texas. On the upside, South Africa can learn from the lessons learnt in the U.S. over the past four months, as we'll hear in the interview coming up next with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's leading the White House COVID-19 task team. Inside COVID-19, from Business News. In the past four months, Dr. Anthony Fauci's profile has been elevated from fame only among the global HIV AIDS specialists, To America's best-known scientist, its coronavirus doctor who is leading the hardest-hit nation's battle to contain the virus. Our partners at the Wall Street Journal sat down with Dr. Fauci. We've extracted highlights that have South African relevance. The full interview is on the biznews.com app or on the website.
1: So, Dr. Fauci, we're four months into this pandemic And you said last week we could see as many as a 100,000 new infections a day. How at this point do you think the country can get the virus under control?
2: We've got to just tighten things up, close the bars, indoor restaurants, either know or make it such that there's very good seating. Make sure people wear masks, make sure they don't congregate in crowds, make sure they keep their distance if you do those simple public health measures, guarantee you're gonna see that curve come down. It's happened time and again in virtually every country that's done that. At the same time, one extra thing if I might add, a lesson to the other cities and states that when you open and reopen, take a really good look at the guidelines and in your quest to get things open quickly. Don't jump over the guideposts. Don't jump over the checkpoints. Do it in a measured way, the way the guidelines delineate. If you do that, the chances of getting a surge are much, much less than if you just jump over things. So it's take care of and control what's surging now in the southern states and the other states be mindful of what happens when you open up and throw caution to the wind, because it could happen to you. What
1: about human behavior has contributed to this
2: new surge? You know, I think, unfortunately, with all the good things about human behavior, there were some things that I think have really contributed to this. It works against us to take the tact that I've been cooped up so long, I'm going to just go out and let it rip. And that just doesn't work. And, you know, apropos of your comment about human behavior, one of the things that we have to keep emphasizing is that we are, it sounds, you know, maybe a little mishy, wishy-washy, but it isn't, is that we are all in this together. And that's not just, you know, a soundbite. That's just the, the reality I've been trying to stress, that by getting infected, or not really caring if you're getting infected. You will inadvertently infect someone who then inadvertently infects someone and then all of a sudden you have a vulnerable person who you had no reason to believe that you were doing anybody any harm. That person gets infected and then you get the hospitalizations. So to say that it's benign is not true, because we're already seeing the hospitalizations going up in these states, we're seeing the intensive care beds are now almost being fully occupied. So this is not inconsequential, what's going on, it's having an impact. And as an individual responsibility, when you go out and say, well, it doesn't matter, I'm going to be okay, because I'm young and healthy. You've got to get out of that mindset, because you are being part of the problem.
1: Are you concerned that as we head into the winter, we could get another surge, a higher, worse surge?
2: You know, of course I am. I'm I'm a public health official. It's my job to be concerned about that, not to alarm people, but to be at least aware of the possibility, maybe likelihood, depending upon how we handle it, that that will occur as you get into the fall And in the winter, there are gonna be a couple of things that are gonna be essentially working against us. One, as the weather gets cold, people spend more time indoors than outdoors. Number two, what happens every winter, like clockwork, we have an outbreak of influenza. So we are going to have now what are called conflating things of if we do get coronavirus resurging in the context of influenza, which happens naturally and predictably every single winter with a influenza outbreak, that's going to complicate issues.
1: One thing we are talking about in New York as an example, Governor Cuomo paused the reopening of indoor dining. Right. Because we have learned that. Outside is better than inside. Inside you got
2: it. has been. Say that again. <laughs> That's a good sound bite. I- <laughs> it's a good sound bite. Say it again. <laughs> Outdoors is always better than indoors. Okay.
1: What does that mean for going back to offices?
2: It really depends on where you are and what the level of viral activity is. In the place that you are if it's a very low level of activity you don't want to give up everything you still should have physical separation i mean if you have an office arrangement that you can do it you have people wearing masks when they can't stay six feet from each other that's what i do right here like right now i'm in a room There's very few people that are in this building with me. But when we pass each other, we have masks on because sometimes you can't avoid being less than six feet because of the way things go and the dynamics of it. Those are the things you've got to do. You've got to be creative, fundamentally sticking with the core type of guidelines, physical distance, washing of hands, wearing of masks, outdoors better than indoors. To the extent that you can do that, do it. If you can't, try as best as you can to be creative enough to maintain the safety of the people that you're dealing
0: with. Inside COVID-19, Crumpers News. Joining us now is Lucky Timani from the Taverners Association. Mr. Timani, how many members do you have? How many people do you represent?
3: The number is about 34,500 nationally in all nine provinces across the country.
0: So you must have got... A big shock last night when you saw the president announcing that there would be no more liquor sales.
3: We were extremely shocked, and especially given the fact that we were proactive in reaching out to government to try and have a conversation with them, because we understood the reports coming out around trauma cases increasing. So we wanted to sit down with government to try and find ways in which we can propose a solution that will look at preserving lives and also preserving livelihoods, as it were.
0: What did you suggest to them?
3: We wanted to look at an issue around consumer behavior, because that's what the problem is. We wanted to look at programs that will talk to responsible consumption of alcohol. But we felt that on our own, we cannot do this. We needed to be social partners together with government in order to deliver this. And also, we had good support from nuclear manufacturers I and mean, just now, and again, it be one, board with this initiative that we're coming up with. But as it were, as it turned out, government didn't come back to us. The best way that it came back to us with was to announce that they are closing the entire industry.
0: 34,500 taverners. Now, these are, just to get it absolutely correct, these are licensed establishments.
3: These are licensed establishments.
0: So it's presumably not just one-man shows.
3: No, it's not. Actually, we did some calculations and research work. Each tavern employs, on average, around three people. So if you then extrapolate that number to the 4,500, then you see just over 100,000 people are going to be affected by this. And over and above the 200,000 livelihoods that are linked to the tavern owners themselves, adding 1 million, which is the entire value chain of the alcohol industry. So it's a big number.
0: How long are you anticipating that this ban will last for?
3: Based on how our government shocked us last night, it will not be wise to try and guess when this thing is going to last. It's very risky.
0: But Mr. Ntamani, people still want, as we've seen from cigarettes, they still want to have their alcohol. Are they going to find alternative supplies, i.e. illegal or unlicensed premises?
3: Actually, one thing that the government's decision managed to achieve yesterday was the promotion of the illicit alcohol trade. That is going to boom, and it's going to be run by people that have no regard to the law, that have no responsibility to any COVID-19 regulation, that are going to fuel you know, other forms of criminality as a result of the proceeds that they'll get from this illicit trading. So it's a mess that was created last night.
0: But if we look at your 34,500 tavern members, surely they would be incentivized. They have to eat, so they might be incentivized to break the law and to open, but in a way that is not above board.
3: Alec, I have no confidence that the government is going to consider incentivizing the taverns for being closed. In the first instance of a lockdown, out of the 34,500 members, only 1,000 of them got some support using other means other than government. You know, So we have no confidence that government will come to the party this time around. And if you look at government agencies, their mandates are very clear, no support for liquid businesses. So our traders are in the ledge on their own. They're actually facing economic ruin. Half of them will not be able to open when the government does decide to bring back the sale of alcohol.
0: But my point is, if they've already got customers and they've already got supply chains, would they not go illegal themselves?
3: I would shudder to think that because they know that the license for their survival is in the actual liquor license. And if they take a risk and lose that, they have no future whatsoever to talk about. But if they they weather the storm, maybe there might be something for them. So I will actually not even advise them to try and go illegal.
0: The other side of the story is that the majority of South Africans are very unhappy about the impact of alcohol on gender-based violence, etc. How could you have addressed that or how could you have worked together with government to ensure that that big festering saw in our society didn't run over?
3: Alec, it's actually interesting to note that of our taverns are run by women who are bearing the brunt of the gender-based violence. So actually, taverns are best placed to be areas in which issues of gender-based violence can be better addressed, you know. And those were some of the options that we were putting on the table to government. It was part of the plan that we sent specifically as well to the presidency to say, we want to look at three things, gender-based violence, responsible consumption of alcohol, and also COVID nineteen to see how we can work together, you know, as liquid traders with government. So it's on top of our mind the issue of gender-based violence. And as traders, liquid traders, we actually remain committed to being the voice against the schedule of gender-based violence in the country.
0: Now that's very interesting. Just say that percentage again that are owned of taverns owned by women.
3: Fifty-four percent.
0: So it's more than half. It's more than half. And are there any ways that you could? or would your members have actually ascribed to a view of saying only two drinks or only three drinks per person? Could that ever be enforced?
3: Yes, it can be enforced. Our our members are prepared to work with government in these unprecedented times. I mean, no one knows how to deal with the situation that we're in, and we remain committed to listening to the government's views on how best we can work together. But as we all know, they have not been willing to sit down with us and have a proper conversation, or even have a conversation at all. So our members would will be willing, actually, to, to consider such such an option.
0: So what do you do now?
3: So we're consulting with our members on the ground on the way forward. We haven't finalised what that way would be like. Uh, but...
0: And I ask this because the taxi industry seems to have somehow managed to get its way.
3: Uh... And we know how they got that, right? There's a threat, there's violence in some instances, and we will not want to go that route. We still have confidence that government will want to sit down with us. So we will keep the doors open for them to come to us and, and engage with us so that we can find a solution. You know, the issue of alcohol abuse, we cannot postpone it to post-COVID. It's an issue that we have avoided as a country. It's an old age problem. Now, I think it's about time now that we actually face it head on, and closing the entire industry to achieve that. It's not a way to go.
0: Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Andrea Rodema is the chief executive and founder of Ask Africa. You've been doing a research study every week since lockdown started. I see the latest week, 14, has got some interesting results and we'll go into those in a moment. But what motivated you to do this in the first place?
4: Well, Alec, I was following what happened to COVID from China from January, and it struck me that there wasn't anybody representing the citizen's voice except little clips on social media, and I thought it has to be different in South Africa. So we prepared, and we literally started interviewing from the 1st of April this year.
0: It must be quite an expensive business. And Looking at it, you've done more than 6,000 interviews.
4: Exactly. We've done nearly 7,000 interviews now. And it is expensive, but the business community in South Africa has been fantastic. Everybody's been helping, and this is something we can do. And we wanted it to be independent, so we own the measurement. We're doing it ourselves, simply to make it possible for everybody to get the same picture and use it, implement any findings they can.
0: But I guess the important people to get the picture are government. Are they using your data? Are they applying it? Because last night, what the president said to the nation seemed to be somewhat irrational, given what most people think.
4: So, Alec, there are. Whilst none of the political parties have contacted us, I don't know if they've received any of the reports. The government most certainly has. And different parts to government, right from Department of Health to the GCIS, There are different parts of government that are really listening into these results.
0: So from what I saw on the latest one, which has come out today for week 14 from July the 1st to the 7th, you talk about doing it so that you can help people to move from fear to agency, in other words, take responsibility. Is there progress on that front?
4: Well, I'm delighted to say that there's little progress, Ellie. So what is fear and agency about? We were all horrified during the early phases of lockdown to see the violence and brutality, really, of both the police and the National Defence Force. And my view has always been that one should be able to trust the citizens to do the right things, mostly. And in order to do so, you want citizens to take agency, to take responsibility. And really, they are. If one looks at the sanitation behaviours, citizens are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Even the citizens reporting on businesses are saying businesses are supposed to be doing what they're doing. From that sense, I'm very positive. The final effect of agency is a loss of fear, and that is not happening. I'm very concerned about South Africans' emotional state. In fact, this week, the results which we literally released two or three hours ago show the highest fear ratings in more than three months.
0: What is that telling us and why?
4: It essentially means our communications in the country aren't working. Because if we track the behavioral changes, they are there. More so in metropolitan and suburban areas than in deep rural areas. But the behavior changes are there and yet people are fearful. And I think it's the context of a lot of mixed messages from some of our government ministers And we can see in the ratings on the government ministers that, you know, Alec, trust has three components. It's empathy, authenticity, and logic. This is how Harvard would describe it. Now, where some of our ministers are failing is in the logical component. And those ministers with low ratings also don't come across as empathic. In other words, having the best interests of the citizens at heart, but actually working on a different agenda.
0: You go through from the president down and ask for scores on various ministers. How does President Ramaphosa, how does he score?
4: Well, Alex, when we saw these scores about two months ago, I thought this is incredible because our president started with ratings of 85%. Now, I don't know of any other president in a democracy that has ratings like that. They've dropped by 9%. In fact, even the minister William Kieser's ratings have also dropped by 10%. And I think what we're seeing is that citizens are getting tired and they're saying we gave the president our all, we behaved as we should have, we've had to cut down our lifestyles, it's cost us money, it's been incredibly uncomfortable, and yet we are now in the peak.
0: So if I have a look at this overall, from what the survey is telling us, apart from some irrational actions such as with taxis, It seems very clearly based on research that is coming back to the president, i.e. not reinforcing a lockdown because that's going to make food insecurity even worse, or a greater lockdown, and bringing in an alcohol ban, even though it has economic consequences, the social benefits are much higher.
4: I think initially... With lockdown, I just kept saying to everybody, I'm so glad I'm not in politics. I wouldn't know what to do because you're having to choose between one form of life and a different form of life when you actually cut people's income. And actually an interesting statistic is that people are nearly as fearful of unemployment as they are of contracting the virus. But we've actually got three parts. It's not just the economy or health. It's also social patterns in a country like ours. And what the lockdown has done for me and I'm sure for others as well, it's put up, you know those safari spotlights when you drive in the evening? It's put those on our society. And our society is struggling, Alec. I'll be seeing a lot more of the shadow sides. But if you consider that in the very first week when we measured the effects of lockdown and we asked people, to what extent do you feel you're managing? I think 56% said, yeah, they're managing. It's fine. It's now 23%, Alec.
0: Inside
1: COVID-19, from News.
0: We have another highlight package for you from one of our partners, this time Bloomberg, where we examine the tough choices facing parents with school-going children.
5: With the start of school fast approaching, institutions from elementary schools to colleges are rushing to reinvent themselves for the coronavirus era. Some are shifting to a mix of in-person and virtual classes. Meanwhile, The Trump administration is pushing schools to reopen completely. I talked to Bloomberg reporter Emma Court, who reports that as schools become the latest political touchpoint in the COVID crisis, there are far more questions than answers about keeping classrooms safe.
6: Plans for reopening elementary, middle, high schools are starting to come out. Uh, We've seen New York, for instance, offer up this option of part time in-person learning We've seen some other districts follow in that sort of model as well. And the real constraint here seems to be literally physical space in classrooms. You know, under CDC guidance for reopening these schools, the idea is you want to have smaller class sizes so kids can appropriately social distance. And obviously, there's some concerns about, you know, if you put pr- really young kids, for instance, will they be able to social distance? Will they understand what that means? Will they be able to wash their hands as thoroughly as you would like? Things like that. Um, And that's why you're seeing many schools propose these sort of smaller in-person schedules, because they physically can't really accommodate that and they don't have staffing as well.
5: And what's the message on this from the Trump administration?
6: This is something that the Trump administration came out very firmly against this week. During a press conference the other day, they said basically schools have to reopen in full. And that was really the message there. There wasn't really any public health guidance around that or or practical advice about how schools might be able to accomplish that the message was really schools have to reopen they talked a lot about the different problems with schools being closed including that virtual learning in many cases you know hasn't been as effective and some schools haven't really been able to do that very well so you heard them talk about you know losing educational gains about Other issues that come up, you know, food insecurity, you know, teachers not being able to spot domestic violence, things like that. A really strong message about how working parents will not be able to restore the economy, basically, under these kinds of conditions.
5: And how are families with kids reacting to this? What do what do they want to see happen in the fall?
6: You know, what's interesting about this is a lot of parents really want school to come back, right? And they want to be able to kind of resume a normal schedule. But there's some really major concerns about safety here, obviously, and whether schools can appropriately keep kids safe at the same time. You know, two or three days a week in the classroom doesn't really solve many working parents problems. Right. They still have to figure out childcare for other days of the week. I mean, many working parents have been really in a, a state of very difficult circumstances during this time. And I think, you know, a lot of people probably agree that kids need to go back to school. The question is, how?
5: But children, as far as we know, are supposed to be largely shielded from the virus, right? So what is the science on that? How much danger would kids be in going back to schools?
6: This is kind of the $10 million question. So it's still really mysterious what the role of children is in all of this. We know children have become infected with COVID-19, but it's not as frequent as adults become ill with this disease. And there's some contradictory research on the subject. So some has found, you know, school age children seem to be less contagious, but there's also another study that found, you know, basically the opposite, that kids may be as contagious as adults. I think it's worth noting there's an international perspective on this as well. There are countries that have reopened schools successfully without seeing coronavirus cases you know, rise significantly. But the consensus on that is really that they did that by following safety precautions, by limiting class sizes, by taking other kinds of mitigation steps.
5: Reopening schools obviously has major implications for the economy, not just for working parents, but also for their kids' educational gains. So what are the experts saying about that? How are they kind of sifting through all of these difficult choices?
6: The the issue here is that the the stakes are sort of pretty high no matter what you do, right? Um, we know that working parents have had to manage both their work days and child care, and it's forced really difficult situations for families. There are questions about whether it's pushing working mothers out of the workforce because it's just too impossible to be caring for toddlers during the day and also managing a uh demanding full time job. But then on the other hand, you have this question about if children really aren't learning effectively during this time, are they losing out on all of this education that could basically further literally their earning potential? There's the the stakes are high.
0: This has been episode 59 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.